it. I've spent 25 years of my life teaching preaching. I spent all of my adult life listening to preaching, contemplating preaching. And in all that teaching, I've kind of, you can, you can summarize it in various categories, but kind of four pigeonholes of what sermons today look like. There's the teaching sermon that concludes with, with hopefully the audience response, yes, that's what we believe. And most of us were raised with a teaching sermon kind of approach, at the end of which the preacher wanted us, the congregation, to say, yes, amen, that's what we believe. Then came a, a move that was more pastoral, the sermon that would elicit the response at the close, thanks, I needed that. That was the pastoral therapeutic sermon that would deal with a variety of topics from divorce recovery to how to have a happy marriage, dealing with lust, and so on. And then came a new movement in preaching that took fire in the 80s and 90s, and that was a, the sage on the stage who would elicit the comment afterward, hopefully, whoa, what do I do with that? Sometimes a prophetic sermon, sometimes like a parable. And then more recently, and this is where the preaching you're hearing from me is hopefully eliciting the response, the testimonial, that is not my testimony, but my testimony as I've lived in the world envisioned in scripture, and that is for the congregation to say, this conversation matters. Let's keep talking. Preaching changed over time when I first arrived in Nashville, 14, 13, 14 years ago, somebody at the Heritage got a hold of me. He was the historian at the, at the Heritage, and he had a, a great idea that he said would bring throngs out to the Heritage. Hermitage, Hermitage. Alexander, I mean, uh, Andrew Jackson's home. I just had a brain freeze. At any rate, I remember the details, <laughs> not the name of the place. But he was going to bring a Church of Christ preacher, a Baptist preacher, and a Presbyterian preacher, to the hermitage, right? Right. And uh, we would preach, and he said, oh, people will just come out in throngs. But the sermon, he said, would need to be a period piece from, and he said, in Church of Christ, probably an Alexander Campbell, whom you should know because Alexander Campbell was the first person to preach at this congregation. And so I said yes, although I knew nobody would show up, but I went ahead and found a period piece Alexander Campbell sermon Alexander Campbell sermon circa 19 or 1830 or so. But it was about two hours long and they said you have eight to ten minutes so I kind of trimmed it down to the highlights. But even when I trimmed it down to the highlights, the language was so dense, the argument was so obtuse, it was hard for me, you know, thinking of a modern day audience. How would I get through that? I needed a dress so I dressed in black as Alexander Campbell might have. But knowing that my audience couldn't live on those words, I kind of moved around a lot. I didn't dance, but I came real close to it. But what shocked me was that the people came out, many of them dressed in period pieces, costumes. The, the docents were there. It was really quite an event. And I made it through the eight minutes without, with the most of the congregation still awake, which I considered a great uh, success. Afterwards, one of the docents said, did you know that in uh, Andrew Jackson's library in his bedroom, he had one of Campbell's books, I forget which one, a debate with somebody. All that was very interesting. There were no conversions that day. Uh, David Flaird, uh, Dewey, and Alexander Campbell didn't convert a soul. 
And my goal, though, was just to keep them awake, and I was largely successful, I think. This conversation matters. Let's keep talking. So after church last Sunday, I got together with a little group that I typically get together with. We share stories about Norwegian backgrounds and ludifisk and so on, but this time, as it has in recent Sundays, got a little more interesting than that. We were talking about the sermon itself. We're talking about the world that's envisioned in this text. The good, I mean, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And we were talking about how uh, we had misjudged her, we thought, beforehand, considering her an immoral woman, and maybe we were wrong about that. And we talked about how she was an evangelist, and the first evangelist in there. And then one in our little group, there were four or five of us talking, one in our little group spouted out something that I just wasn't expecting. He said, you know, he said, I identify with Nicodemus. I got to thinking. The conversation ended. I went home, but that conversation stayed with me. I got to thinking, you know, I might have made Nicodemus into a straw man in that sermon, kind of setting him up against the woman to help her look even better, though I think that's what John was doing, but I didn't like the fact that I'd treated him like a straw man. And the next thing I realized was that I, too, can identify with Nicodemus. And then I got to wondering, might it be that the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ could identify with Nicodemus? Let's see what you think. The Nicodemus story is found in John chapter 3, and it goes like this. There was a man of the Pharisees, a religious leader, his name Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus at night, and here's how the conversation went. Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless, of course, God is with him. Jesus. Unless someone is born again from above, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus. Well, how can a person be <laughs> born when he's old? He can't enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus. Unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I say you must be born again from above. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of the wind, though you don't know its origin nor its destination. So it is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus. How can these things be? Jesus, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things. We speak of that which we know, testify of what we've seen, and you don't accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The confession is, I've always liked Nicodemus. I have. I've admired him. I've looked up to him. 
He's a religious leader. He has on his wall his degrees in their frames. He has mahogany shelves and leather-bound volumes in that glass-encased shelves, shelves of his. He's so distinguished, Nicodemus is. He's so respected. I've always liked Nicodemus. He's a man whose confidence is infectious. Listen to him. Listen to how he talks. We know, he says, phrases like, we understand, we can say with assurance, assurance, no soft peddling with Nicodemus, no gray areas with Nicodemus. I've always liked Nicodemus. He's thoughtful, he's intelligent, he's politically savvy. Opportunity comes along, sort of falls from the sky, he investigates, he's careful, he's considerate. He's cool under pressure. Nicodemus, as you can listen to him, represents a wide range of constituents. And he responds appropriately, away from the limelight, when darkness allows him to enact his don't ask, don't tell policy. He knows how to play the game. He's calibrated. He's cal calculated. I've always liked Nicodemus. I like his vitality. It's night. He's not home watching the latest movie on Netflix. He's out. He's investigating. He's inquiring. He's looking into new things. Like when a new teacher arrives with a new teaching, he's the first person there. I've always liked Nicodemus. If he hadn't gone into religion, I imagine him as an engineer or maybe an accountant asking, how much weight will that beam bear? What will this cost? To whom does she report? He knows how things work. He knows how things fit. I've always liked Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this religious leader, his pedigree, his stature. When the governor or the presidential candidate comes to town, Nicodemus is at the first table. He's among the first served, waiters there in watchful attendance, and then when the time comes, he offers the invocation and all the anthropologists of stature, of status take note. I've always liked Nicodemus. I've liked him because he represents the fringe benefits that should come to one who's given his life to the patient nurturing of the sacred institution that we call the church. I've always liked Nicodemus, and you can probably see why. Go ahead, Lori. You'll not be surprised to hear that Michelangelo's last work, a majestic marble sculpture, included Nicodemus. It's called the Florentine Pieta, the lamentation over the dead Christ. What you're seeing on the screen is Jesus' body just removed from the cross. His arms are limp. He has one leg at an odd angle. His head is falling back on, upon his shoulder. His body is slumped against his kneeling mother, both supported by Nicodemus. Nicodemus looks like a weightlifter. He towers over and enfolds Mary with his sinewy arms. Michelangelo's Nicodemus is hooded. He's bearded with age. He's looking down upon the Christ and his mother. Art historians think that Nicodemus is Michelangelo's self-portrait. He began the sculpture when he was in his 70s. 
intending to give the Pieta to a church requesting that he, Michelangelo, be buried at the foot of the altar. Thank you, Lori. That is why I am so pleased to hear that Nicodemus intends to visit Jesus because, dare I say it, I look forward to their dialogue. I look forward to Nicodemus's evaluation of Jesus. And so, early one evening in John's Gospel, we happen upon a conversation of great interest. It's the night that Nicodemus is visiting Jesus of Nazareth, where initially all of my presuppositions are confirmed and, in fact, enhanced when I hear Nicodemus say, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God and no one can do these signs that you do unless, unless God is with him. These words, frozen, like Michelangelo's Pieta, for us to consider. So impressive, don't you think? Nicodemus seeking Jesus, Nicodemus taking the initiative, Nicodemus coming to Jesus. And then the first word out of his mouth is Rabbi. And that word rabbi appears on occasion throughout John's gospel. The first time we hear it is when Nathaniel and Andrew in the earlier chapter uh, says it, rabbi, they ask. Or the inquiring disciples of John 9, you'll recall, ask, rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this, he should be born blind? Or Mary at the tomb, the moment that she realizes that that man isn't the gardener, but the resurrected Jesus, she says, Rabbi. Add to Nicodemus's character list then respectful and in very good company. And then the clincher, I think, in his opening words, we know that you have come from God. Just look at Nicodemus when he says that. Look at his face when he says, come from God. When those words leave his mouth, what does he look like? You say, well, he looks like John, because that's what John said in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look again. Who does Nicodemus look like when he says, we know you've come from God? You might say he looks like Jesus, because Jesus will later say in the seventh chapter, I'm from God. God sent me, which makes his phrase, we know, all the more appealing. And now I'm hearing more than confidence and understanding from this man who's making a statement of faith. Nicodemus represents the community. He says, we know. He's the people's leader. Nicodemus has a host of people behind him. So let's embrace Nicodemus. Let's bring him into the fold. Let's baptize this man right now. I would. I don't know if I've told you this, but I've spent many years in the Detroit region. People have some false assumptions about people from that area. Number one is we should know how to drive in snow and ice. We do know how to drive in snow when there's a salt truck right in front of us that's been plowing and salting. We're experts at following the salt truck. We know how to drive in that. We don't know how to drive in the ice. There's also some connection with the Detroit Lions, thinking that you must be a fan. My three sons and I all had Honolulu blue t-shirts that we bought that said rebuilding, that's the color of the Detroit Lions, rebuilding since 1957, because that's the last year the Detroit Lions won anything, and that was before the, the, they even had a Super Bowl that had its 55th rendition last Sunday. 
So at a more recent draft, when, the, when it came the lion's turn, the lion's notorious for never picking the right guy. When the consensus best player was still on the board, somebody, some long-suffering Lions fan said, for the love of God, just pick the best player this time. I'm telling you that Nicodemus is a good draft pick. There he is, eight-year-old Caleb. He's barely visible. He stands in the baptistry next to his daddy who's in his waiters. Daddy's choking back tears. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And like a deer in the headlights, little Caleb squeaks out a high-pitched yes. And we applaud the baptism. And into the room walks Nicodemus. And we say, for the love of God, baptize that man. Which is why... I find Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus so troubling, frankly, so hard to believe. The pattern of the dialogue isn't hard to follow. Nicodemus says, Jesus says, Nicodemus says, Jesus says, Nicodemus says, Jesus says. That's how it goes. It's not hard to follow at all, which is why Jesus doesn't recognize it's so hard to follow that he has the catch of the day. Why is it that Jesus doesn't embrace this man? In fact, why does he reduce Nicodemus to a series of questions? Nicodemus' outgoing words are, how can a man? He can't enter a second time, can he? How can this be? What? Until finally, Nicodemus disappears. You turn your Bible upside down and shake it. He's not in chapter 3. Test for fingerprints at the end of chapter 3. He's not there. He's left the stage, which causes me to ask, what is troubling Jesus? What's wrong with Jesus? But once we start looking around this text, there's some clues, some hints. We get suspicious, for example, we should, when we hear Nicodemus say, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that's a shoot up a red flag that says signs. His belief is based on signs. Even after the curtain has risen for the beginning of chapter 3, the narrator's voice at the end of chapter 2 is still reverberating from the previous scene when he says, quote, Jesus doesn't trust himself to people whose trust is based on signs. Jesus doesn't believe in people whose belief is based on signs. That's what's troubling Jesus. Nicodemus's belief is based on signs, he says. And there's something troubling John, the writer, as well. He says that Nicodemus comes at night, despite my presuppositions. The second rag flag goes up, which is night. All through John's story, he uses the image of night. He's not talking about an exact time like 1 a.m. He's not talking about the cover to prevent recognition. He has more in mind than the parent who says, where were you so late last night? What good happens after midnight? Only trouble brews at late hours. When John says night, he has something even worse in mind. Jesus says you can't work at night. Jesus says you stumble at night. Judas betrays Jesus at night. And as Nicodemus is walking off the stage in John chapter 3, Jesus is saying, men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And Nicodemus comes at night. Hmm, 
Who is he? Could he be a wolf in sheep's clothing? Now we might have a bit of a problem with Nicodemus. Nicodemus tells Jesus, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That might be a little presumptuous, don't you think? Telling Jesus what God can and can't do. Like Nicodemus has the upper hand. No one can unless. We know that God does not answer the prayers of sinners. We know that God doesn't perform miracles today. We know. Who does he think he is? God's agent? Should make us all a little bit nervous. Which reminds me. Did you know that Michelangelo destroyed the Florentine Pieta before he completed this self-portrait? He broke it. That's right. He smashed it up, really. Art historians speculate why. Some think the block of marble was defective. Some art historians think that maybe an arm or a foot broke off. So he abandoned the sculpture, and he did not finish it. I wonder, maybe Michelangelo decided he didn't want to be Nicodemus anymore. Because Nicodemus is an ambiguous man. He has one foot in each world. I think I've seen him around. I know I've seen him in scripture. Nicodemus looks like that elder brother out there in the field standing at the end of Jesus' parable. Will he go into the party or not? He looks like Jonah listening to God at the very end of the book of Jonah. He sounds like the character of Jonah, looks like him. And should I not have mercy on Nineveh who doesn't know the difference between his left hand and his right hand? What will that angry man do with his nationalism? And I've seen Nicodemus at 4th Avenue. He's 16 years old. He's at the very margins of your peripheral vision. He's not part of the church's culture. He stands at the door after church waiting for a conversation with you. He's an elderly non-Christian. He's a man who comes to church with his wife, stands at arm's length, but every once in a while he'll make a post-sermon comment that makes you think that he's listening more carefully than all the rest of us. Nicodemus is every person you know with one foot in each world wrestling with the shape and the depth of faith. Nicodemus is the man that moves from certitude to ambiguity. But then Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And when Jesus says that, something very unexpected happens. Jesus' words carry him off of Nicodemus and they strike us in the heart. I'm concerned now, I'm concerned about me and all of us who are teachers of Israel like Nicodemus because I have to confess, this isn't the first time I've been to this conversation. Back in the mid-70s when Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford and everybody was born again, there were yellow bumper stickers in the back of everybody's car, it seems like, that had the question, born again? And I stood across from a Baptist with the passage between us, and I said to the Baptist, do you know what this means? And he said, yes. Do you know what this means? And I said, yes, this passage means baptism. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And my friend said, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It means you must accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. 
And at the moment that he said that, somebody behind me shoved me into the Baptist, who pushed me back, which I thought was rude. And so I grabbed his arms to prevent further assault. He interpreted that as an offensive gesture, and pretty soon we were both on the ground. We were kicking and gouging and calling each other names. He called me a Campbellite, and I called him a hard-hearted, hard-shelled, unteachable Baptist. And we butted heads, and we butted certitudes. And that was my first ecumenical experience with this text, and I just wanted to tell you it was very ugly. So I'd like to avoid that and try again this time, just us, to go back because of the words that carom off Nicodemus and strike us in the heart when Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel, you're serious about Christianity, and you don't understand these things. This time, all of us, listening with Nicodemus to Jesus just to understand. But sometimes Jesus isn't all that easy to understand. Sometimes he's hard to hear. It sounds like he says, you must be born again from above. We turn up our hearing aids, and we lean in and we ask, would you repeat that, please? And Jesus says again, you must be born again from above. We turn to somebody who knows the language, and we say, what did he say? And she says, he said, you must be born anothen. So we say, what's that mean? And she says, it means again from above. She explains that that word has a double meaning, both in space and time. She goes on to it. She goes on to explain. We begin to realize that Jesus is creating an ambiguity here. He's creating a mystery. Right then, the light comes on, and Jesus turns to us and he says, "Here's what I mean. The wind or the spirit moves where it wills. You can see it and you can feel its presence, but you can say nothing more than that's a westerly wind. The new birth is like the wind." It's a mystery beyond your understanding, beyond your control. A movement from certainty to ambiguity to discipleship. And then, after Jesus has been lifted up, that's John's language, Nicodemus in the final scene comes again, this time to bury Jesus. We are told with 75 pounds of spices, which is an excessive amount of anointing love. And in that public act, Nicodemus abandons his neutrality. He abandons the secrecy, and he moves from ambiguity to discipleship, from certainty to ambiguity to discipleship. Lori, the shattered Florentine Pieta. Michelangelo's assistant, assistant asked for the sculpture's broken pieces after his death. Later artists reconstructed the work following the master's model from certainty to ambiguity to discipleship. That's Nicodemus in the story of John. And that is me I am hoping, and it may well be you. I believe it is the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, who one year ago today were cruising along in certitude, plans for Easter, programs humming, attendance on the rise from previous years, and then 
everything changed. That's Nicodemus, and indeed it is us. Driving down the freeway at 70 miles an hour, full of certainty, we should arrive at 3.05, give or take a minute, and then the fog sets in, and then the road be roads begin to ice, and the future is uncertain. Or a job is lost, or a daughter moves, or a relationship is violated. You've just moved from certainty to ambiguity. Or maybe even more like Nicodemus. You've settled comfortably into your station in life and your station in Christianity when a teaching of Jesus, a lifestyle of Jesus, upsets the apple cart. What I'm saying is Nicodemus may well be the trajectory of the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ as we move from certainty to ambiguity to discipleship. He said that he identified with Nicodemus, and that caught my attention, especially in the context of the woman at the well. And I believe that's the beginning to imagine ourselves, not always the hero of the story that's being told in scripture, but in the case of Nicodemus, as one who even in the early scene is moving from certitude to ambiguity, ultimately to discipleship. We don't know exactly when Nicodemus walks off the stage in chapter three. Maybe you can look and tell me more about it, but I can't find out exactly the moment when he walks off. I don't know when he walks off. I don't know what he heard exactly when he walked off. But I do know that it appears that he came to live into what Jesus says in the 16th verse, which is four verses after where I stopped reading. That's John 3, 16, where he's, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And that movement from ambiguity to discipleship was certainly an understanding of that text. That's the story of Nicodemus, as revealed in John's gospel. This conversation matters, too. Let's keep talking. Thank you.